hope that it encourages you. Most importantly, I hope that we're faithful to the preaching of his word. So today we're in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We've been on the book of James now for a while. Uh, and today we're in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. So James 4, 1 through 6, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for today. And would you help us be alert to your word, God? Would you help us, Lord God, to um, hear and observe, meditate on your word? Your word Lord God has taken root in our hearts. And we've seen it bear fruit. We've seen life come from your word. God, uh, thank you that you tilled the ground of our hearts to make it fertile. Would you continue to do that work today? We thank you for salvation. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you, God, for being alive. Would you help us to be joyful, to be at peace, to be grounded? So God, help me to simply serve you and not to be about the glory of man, but help me to be about your glory. And God, as we listen, may we listen to your glory, where we observe, Lord God, and take in what you have to say today. And so, Lord, we need you today to listen, to preach, to do all that we do. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So what causes us to fight amongst ourselves? What exactly is at the root of our causing strife and division among ourselves? James, in our passage today, saints, answers this question for us. As he seeks to provide correction and counsel to persecuted saints, remember, he's talking to persecuted believers here. He's giving them what they need to know as far as what is at the core of their problem. The core of the problem really is in our text today. James unpacks for believers who may have been divided with others in the faith. The cause is what he's concerned with here, which may have been more difficult to see and to know what exactly that cause is. We have a tendency to think that we're not the problem. Fighting one another happens. Believers should have dwelled in unity with one another, especially in a time of great persecution. The cause of fights within us shows itself in our fellowship with one another. If we allow 
the cause to continue in our hearts. I've seen division in church, and I've never seen anything more uglier than division in a church. What happens when one has a troubled heart, full of desires that seeks pleasure outside of contentment with Christ, this troubled heart is distracted from knowing what it needs. And because they don't know what they need, they cannot even begin to know what to ask for. I don't know if you ever asked yourself the question, not so much what you need versus why are you asking? Sometimes we make the mistake of asking for things that we think we need, but they're actually just things we want. See, there are many passionate people that desire but are blind. They are blind to the love that others need from them while concerned only with others loving them. So the blindness has caused many to seek affirmation and love in the world. That's where they go to. They live with an adulterous heart that seeks the glory of man. Many are passionate about what they love more than the God that they should love. So do you know, Saint, that God has deposited in us all that we need? All that we need in Christ? He's given us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And I would ask, have you been humbled by the love of God expressed to you as he deposited himself in you? So what we need in this moment of feeling entitled, this culture of entitlement, is we need to forget ourselves. We, you know, at times have to remember what grace is. Grace reminds us how much he has loved us by giving his son to us so that when we're in trouble and when we're feeling like, you know, we need more, we need to remember we have all we need in Jesus. Our passage today gives us what we need to remember that as far as Jesus being enough for us. And it also reminds us that the world has nothing to offer us. It looks good out there. Trust me, it does. The fruit looks very tasty. But we know that it's only temporary. But we go to that fruit for a reason. And I think James alludes that or goes to that in our text today. Three points briefly today. The root we see in verse 1. The root. And then the fruit in verses 2 through 5. The fruit. Verses 2 to 5. And then we see in verse 6, the reward. So the root, the fruit, the reward. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Verse 1 actually has two questions. James is most likely dealing with believers who, because of the pressure of persecution, are fighting one another. The pressure of defending themselves from the persecutors and the pressure creating conflict with their own brothers and sisters in the faith, it may have manifested itself in quarreling and fighting. Quarreling has to do with conflict, being combative with others. And James is asking, what causes conflict and combativeness among you? In other words, what causes you to be inclined to combat with others? What's your problem? James also talks about fights, not just quarreling. Fights meaning clashing with others. The word tends to speak of fights even as physical. 
or having an intense bitterness or rivalry with one another. So with quarrels, conflict, combative with others, and fights, physical, intense bitterness and rivalry, James is asking, what is the cause of these things? What is the cause of these things manifesting in your life towards others? Some might be asking, how could Christians have quarreling and fighting among them? You know what? I remember a story of a pastor I know, no names, but I know of a pastor who actually physically fought his son in church. They, 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 they were, you know, they, they, that never happened to me because I, I will put my kids in their place. You know what I'm saying? Just, just a heads up. That ain't happening here. But it did happen. Can you imagine walking into church and the pastor's physically fighting his son in the church? What causes that? What causes quarreling and fights among us in the church? James answers this in the latter part of the verse. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Our passions are at the root of quarreling and fighting, according to James here. Passions has to do with desire for pleasure. In some cases, this word was used to speak of hedonism where someone is seeking pleasure at all costs, even to the point of self-indulgence that leads to self-destruction. So the root cause of conflicts, being combative with others, physical and intense bitterness and rivalries, come from our desire to please ourselves. The passions that are at war within us are the cause. So Paul in Titus 3.3 also uses the same word to remind Titus who believers once were. In Titus 3.3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is what unbelievers look like. And yet, James has a reason to address the church to not be like that. Can that happen in church? Absolutely. This word is used to speak of an unbeliever. It shows us that quarreling and fighting among those who profess faith reveal either that someone is very immature or maybe someone is not a believer and they don't have genuine faith. It, it can also speak of someone who knows better but are too prideful to humble themselves. I know people who know some good theology. But man, they got that pride going. They act like they don't stink. In either case, James assumes that this is to believers. Christians can fall into this trap of being combative and having rivalry with one another. We know what John says about hatred, don't we, of a brother? In 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's a hard transition to worship the Lord on a Sunday and you're like, oh, thank you, Lord. And then you curse someone out right after service. So we're not talking about a hatred of a brother or sister. You know, it's not just talking about that. James is speaking of actually because, you know, the focus in the like the Titus passage talks about how this is actually descriptive of an unbeliever. 
But we're talking about hatred and rivalries and bitterness happening in the church. James is speaking of family fighting, divisions and fights happening in the household of God. And the root cause of their fighting and quarreling is not from what has happened to them. Actually, it's what's happening in them. It's in their hearts. James uses wars to describe the intensity happening in the soul of someone who has desires to please themselves. Not someone who is just emotionally hurt or challenged. The passions that cause this war come from a self-indulgent person. That is the root cause. This includes coveting what others have, anger and bitterness towards one another, divisions, refusal to reconcile, a more extreme case, murder, a life of lack, which usually happens to someone who is self-indulgent, a life that is not satisfied and content produces a life of bankruptcy. Passions that are at war within us, if we lose the war, we surrender to what we are passionate about. We do the very thing that God hates, that we profess we don't do. So all of life's problems come from the passions that are at war within us. So what does a life look like when reaping from this root cause? What fruit is produced in a life led by passions that are at war within us? Well, we see that in verses 2 to 5. In the second point, the fruit. Verses 2 to 5. In verse 2, he says, you desire and, you, and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Murder, the unlawful taking of a life, happens because of desiring the things that you don't have. Now, James is talking about something specific to the cause of murder. Murder can happen because of anger, which is not the same thing as coveting. But by coveting, we mean a desire for the material possessions that belong to someone else. It speaks of murder that happens because someone wanted what another person had. They desired money, so they robbed. They desired possessions, so they break in and steal. Just as a teenager, I broke into houses. I was only 13 years old. Me and my, my, I thought he was a good friend, but we stole from each other. That was a dysfunctional relationship, now that I think about it. <laughs> I would see my stuff at his house and his stuff at mine. It was just dysfunctional. <laughs> Side note, but <laughs> I remember breaking into houses, and I did that because that house had something in it I wanted. I knew where the money was because I would actually make friends with the dude and kind of like, you know, know where stuff is. And then me and my boy, his name was Booper. Me and Booper used to break into houses and take stuff. It was because we didn't have anything. We wanted what someone had that we didn't have. That's the driving behind doing these things. We covet things. It drives us to want things that we don't have. James is speaking of a worldly sinful desire. This is what happens in the hearts of an unbeliever. But it can happen in the life of a believer. 2 Samuel chapter 11. David and Bathsheba. Remember that story? When kings were supposed to go off to war, David was like, nah, I'm staying here. And all of a sudden, that was already... You know, mess up number one. Then he goes out and sees another man's wife. 
desires her, tells the soldiers to get her, sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, then sends her husband out to war knowing that he will die and they act like everything's okay, I'll marry her and everything's good. And you know what? God's not good with that. David saw something he wanted and sinned as a result of it. This happens in the world and it also, sadly, it happens in the church. This shouldn't happen in the church, but sadly it does. James speaks of reaping from a life of desiring and not having. One can murder as a result of coveting. It is why, actually, this happens in the world we live in. James speaks of an extreme case here with murder, but there are other things that can be reaped as well as a result. He continues to speak of coveting and not obtaining as the cause of fighting and quarreling. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I remember... It was me and my wife and another couple, and we were trying to console a single lady who desperately wanted to get married. And she was doing things that were sinful, overt sin. And we sat down with her and actually you know, told her about herself. Like, sis, we love you, but this is not right. And all she did was yell at us, telling us that you, know, you don't know what it's like because you're married. How dare you tell me anything? She coveted marriage so much that she was blind, that in her journey to wanting to be married, she was sinning. I'm like, sis, like, you should love the Lord your God more than anything. But you're showing no love for God in your journey for wanting something that you don't have. That's where fighting and quarreling comes from. But you know what? Fighting and quarreling will be reaped in the life of a, of a life of covetousness as far as what others have. And you know what? Uh, it also, when you talk about not obtaining, not obtaining something is a result of coveting. People don't know this. You may not have what you desire because your desiring actually is coveting. Some of us may not have because it isn't God's timing yet. James isn't talking about that. He's talking about coveting and that being what hinders the believer from receiving. Why would God give you something you covet? Many people ask the question, why don't I have what I desire when the real question is this? Am I desiring rightly? Is my wanting to have what I want out of coveting or just a desire for good things, for his glory? Am I content with Christ? Am I satisfied with Jesus? Maybe we do not have because we're not asking for the right reasons. Maybe we have a covetous heart. Why would God give you something you covet? More than him. If you're coveting something, Rather than desiring something out of wanting it for good reasons, then probably that is why not having it is the case. Now, we all desire with an imperfect heart. None of us can desire and say that we have a perfect motive for wanting the things that we have, right? But the point that James is making is that if someone covets, they will show for it by a life of lack. Covetousness leads to bankruptcy. Now, I have to clarify what I mean by lack. Let's say someone desires a relationship. Because they desire it, they can eventually find someone. Right? 
But when they find someone to be in a relationship with, does that mean that they no longer lack a relationship? According to James, the answer is no. What if the person who longed to be in a relationship is in disobedience to God? What if the relationship is abusive, contrary to the word of God? Does the person who desired and then found the relationship lack no longer? The answer is no. They still do not have what they should have, and it is because they haven't even begun to ask for the right reasons. You do not have because you do not ask. This is what someone reaps when desiring and coveting. A life of covetousness, you might get what you think you need and have it, but you're still lacking. You're still at ground zero. You have nothing because at the expense of a life of righteousness, you've compromised to get what you want. You're lacking. You have nothing. And the relationship you might be in or whatever the case is, whatever it is that you're coveting, just because you have it physically and you have it there doesn't mean you have what you actually need. So just as murder is a result of someone coveting what they themselves do not have, this can be the case with many other things in life that we covet. A life of coveting will leave you broke and empty while having obtained a lot of things. A life of coveting will deceive you into believing that life comes from enjoying things that are contrary to God's will. Can you enjoy things that are sinful? Yes. I desire a relationship, so you go out into the world and you look for it and you get one, let's say from an unbeliever, let's say, and you're satisfying yourself. You don't have a relationship. You're not fulfilling desire. You're satisfying self. You're feeding your passions. You haven't even begun to know what satisfaction is. So this is why the world is the way it is. It is the way it is because they covet to please and they search creation to fulfill what only God can fill. They refuse to believe that it is the creator outside of creation that can only fill that void in us. So we have to ask the question, are we asking? Are we asking as God would want, which is asking not out of a covetousness, but rightly desiring from God the things we desire. Asking about our asking is what verse 3 deals with. I don't know if we ever asked that question. Am I asking right? Is my asking really asking? Verse 3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You might be asking, but are you asking correctly? Not having is what you reap when asking for the wrong reasons. Remember James 1, 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, remember, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. James at first dealt with asking God with doubts and how one will not receive anything because of doubting. In our text, James talks about not receiving because of asking for the wrong reasons. Ask yourself first, why am I asking for what I want first? Before you go to God and ask, why are you asking? What would you do with what you're asking for? Would you be faithful to Christ if you receive what you are asking for? 
Maybe that's a better question. Is this relationship actually going to help my walk with God? That will solve a lot of problems for you. Or will you spend this relationship on your passions? Asking wrongly means to ask so that you can spend what you desire on your passions. Which brings to light that maybe the person is asking with evil and selfish intent. And that's probably why they don't have. Knowing that harm will come to their faith if they get what they want at that time. You know what? To spend in our text literally means to waste. To use up. To consume. Spending on your passions. You're wasting yourself. You're self-consumed. Which is of no eternal worth. One translation said of verse 3, it said it this way. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. I keep using the relationship analogy, you know, uh, idea because I think for all of us when we were single, and I, I pray for our young adults. I don't, you know, in this culture, I, I can't even think of me being single in this culture. So I, I pray for you guys. Me and Wayne and others, we pray for you. We know how difficult it is. Um, but you have to ask, when you see a relationship, the fundamental questions. Is this relationship going to actually add to my relationship with the Lord or will it take it away? Be honest. Being consumed with yourself and what you want more than what God wants for you and getting what you want in order to please yourself. You know what? You show it in a wasted, used up life. You, you're wasting away. Can you imagine what James is concerned with here and why he's saying what he's saying? This is why he's concerned. He doesn't want churches to look like the world that's wasting away. The world is wasted. It's used up, lacking, empty without God. Can you imagine a church looking like this? James wanted the churches that were persecuted to know that they, in fact, can ask God rightly about what they need, no matter what was happening to them. They could maintain a right heart in their prayers, even though... They are persecuted. So there's no excuse for a believer to cause quarrels and fights, desiring and not having, coveting and not obtaining, not asking and not receiving, spending what we covet on our passions. This should not be the case for the people of God. In other words, do we live like God is enough? I have Jesus. Show it. Sometimes knowing that Jesus is enough is a life of denial. Denying the things of the world because you're satisfied in Christ. We have all we need in Jesus. All that we should want is Christ. I remember the song, All I Have is Christ. Uh, the lyrics goes, I once was lost in darkest night, yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. That's what the world gives. It gives you pleasures, but at the expense of leading you to a grave empty. So how can we show the world their need for Jesus if we cannot show Jesus as enough in our lives? 
The early uh, Latin writer Tertullian of Carthage declared that one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments they gave him, because he could find a counterpart for every argument they would present. Tertullian said, and I quote, they demonstrated something I didn't have. He saw something in the church he didn't have himself. And so to ask out of coveting saints what others have is to ask as if God isn't enough. This is not what the church should look like. We should show a love for God and a love for one another. By this, the world will know that we are his disciples. So do you see why James said what he said in verse 4? He said, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You adulterous people. He's not just bringing an accusation of adultery to them. This, you adulterous people, proclamation to them is actually... It is an indictment, but it's to remind them who they're married to. <laughs> You're married. Why are you committing adultery? The NASB and the ASV said it, saying, you adulteresses. Why are you committing adultery to our God? You've committed adultery. There are different ways the word adultery was used between a man and a woman but it was also used between the church and God. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, when they committed adultery against their God, they were called adulterers for it. To commit adultery means to be unfaithful in a marriage, but I would argue that the more literal use of this term is between God and his church. This is not to condemn people who have committed adultery in our church, but it speaks of the actual adultery that one commits when they pursue the things of the world and not pursue God. What does an adulterous life look like when it comes to our relationship with God? It looks like you're a friend of the world. You love the world. You love the things of the world. You're enticed by it. But you know what? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity meaning hostility, hatred, being alienated from God. It baffles my mind to know that there are consistent church attenders. They're churchy, but they're worldly. They, 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 look, they look so Christian on Sunday, but they go out into the world and look just like everybody else. Worldly dating, worldly desires, worldly success, worldly wisdom, Worldly values, all these things. Friendship with the world means that one validates the world as good for the things they're asking for. This type of affection and friendship with the world is enmity with God. John the Apostle talked about what is in the world in 1 John 2, 15-16. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's what's there. Yes, it looks desirous to the eyes. Yes, it feels good in the world. But you know what? That's a pride of life. That's a life of pride. And it's not from the Father. It's from the world. That's why James was concerned here. He doesn't want the church to look like the world. Desiring what the flesh desires leads to an allurement that 
you know, to the world that actually causes you to conform to the world, to look like the world. The world is full of things that compete with your love for God, things that look pleasing to an adulterous heart. The world offers a life full of pride, pride in oneself over God. All these things are not from God. They appeal only to the desires and passions of the flesh. However, there has been much confusion in the church as to what is worldly. You know, I, I actually, uh, growing up, when I turned 15, I came to Christ, and I actually was part of some legalistic churches where you couldn't even go to the movies. And I, I, I remember walking in. I walked in with some Tims. I had a, actually, I had an Afro back in the day, believe it or not. <laughs> I had my little pick. My little book bag, I was a hip-hopper walking into the church, a born-again believer, you know, and baggy jeans. We used to wear really baggy jeans back in the day. And I walk in, sit there, raise my hands, loving Jesus. And I can't tell you how many times I was criticized just simply by the look I had. They thought I was worldly. They thought that I was of the world. So this confusion may be in the church of what worldliness is. How you should look when you come to church, how you should talk, how you should dress. That's not worldliness. Worldliness has to do with passions, seeking the world to actually satisfy the passions of your soul. So if someone wants a relationship out of a heart that is content with their relationship with God, as an example, that relationship is worldly, which can happen between two believers when idolizing a relationship. Don't get it twisted. It doesn't mean you have to pursue an unbeliever for it to be worldly. That could happen in the church too. You can idolize a relationship. Idolize marriage. Idolize the family. I've seen people make excuses like, oh, I'm, I'm about my family, so you know, I'm not even gonna come to church. Uh, I'm being a good father, uh, but nah, I'm not even gonna fellowship. I'm not worried about that. You know, God told me I need to be at home and love on my wife. It's like, yeah, no doubt but you're idolizing your family. Don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. So in its immediate context, what would have persecuted believers in our text wanted from the world? It may have been freedom. Freedom that the people enjoyed as a result of not being Christian. Because they were persecuted. Can you imagine? They were the lowest of lows in their society and God is telling them they're blessed, but they're seeing other families eating and having, and them not having. God is saying they don't have. If you have me, you have. Amen? Amen. Having Jesus is having. <laughs> they should have known that friendship with the world is enmity with God because friendship with the world entailed affection and desire for those things that cater to an adulterous heart. And loving things of the world out of a desire for them over a desire for God places someone at odds with God. So whoever wishes, meaning desirous or even insisting to be a friend of the world, makes themselves an enemy with God. Verse 5 says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? God yearns jealously here. God is passionate that the spirit he has made to dwell in us should be faithful to him. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That's why God hates it. 
Some have pointed out that there is no particular passage that is found where James is quoting here. He's actually not quoting from a specific passage. He's actually, it's a free quotation of the summaries, uh, actual summary of the Old Testament. This is what the scriptures teach. That he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He seems to be summarizing the Old Testament teaching here where God is jealous for his people and he is. Exodus 20, verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Talking about other gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4:24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Zechariah 8, 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. There are more passages describing God as jealous, but what does this mean? And this is important. Oprah Winfrey, actually, as an example, says she walked away from an orthodox view of Christianity when she heard a pastor preach about God being jealous. So what does God being jealous mean? In Hebrew, the word jealous is used to only describe God, this actual Hebrew root word. And it comes from the word intensity. The word is similar to the Hebrew word for zealous. By zealous, we mean an active and devoted diligence for something. Divine jealousy deals with God wanting what is rightfully his, which is the affections and passions of his people. So Oprah made the mistake to think that God is jealous, meaning that he was sinfully envious. But divine jealousy deals with God wanting what is rightfully his. If a husband saw another man flirting with his wife, is it right for the husband to feel what they feel at that time? Is it sinful? No. Now, you punch somebody in the mouth, that's something, you know, like you you shouldn't do that. That's a, that's a little different. But the very feeling of offense and wanting what's only yours and how someone crossed the line to actually get something that's only yours. God divinely feels that way about his people. God wants from us what is rightfully his. And when we live a life that's not giving what belongs to him, you know what? God shows it. And his displeasure. God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. We forget the great reward of faithfulness to God. That's really at war. You know, like you have to remember young adults. Listen, man, my heart's for you today. Because I know that the world's enticing you all the time. For us married folk, it's it's a little different. You know, like we, we go home with someone. It's easy, but I know the feeling of not having someone to go home with. And I know that the justification sometimes that you make, like, man, I've been waiting so long and I don't, you know, I get it. I understand. But listen, what's rightfully his is your heart. Don't ever trade it. And don't ever forget the reward that comes from being faithful to God. When we desire and are passionate for the things of the world, which comes from a self-indulgent heart, we may have all the things of the world. You, may, you, you can have all the relationships, all the riches of the world, but you be the most lacking in the world. 
because what God has given you is rightfully his. But for those who have lived imperfect lives and may have struggled with wars in your souls like I have, you've battled discontentment and you're fighting the good fight of faith, let me encourage you. There's a reward for you. God gives grace. The reward in verse 6, closing, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's kindness and favor is given to those who are his. His goodwill towards us is given to us, not because we desire perfectly or have shown great faith. He gives what we need even when we don't deserve it. I spent my life looking in relationships. I remember going to New York City. I was digging a Dominican chick out there. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we were like talking, uh, this lady and um, actually not lady. She was, a, we were young adults. And I was driving every weekend. Um, and I actually thought about marrying her. Uh, you know, and then that led to like a life of constant relationship looking. I remember a pastor rebuked me because I kept bringing girls to the church too many times. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. I'm, I'm being honest with you. I wanted to be in a relationship. And if I heard she's Christian and she's fly, I'm going to bring her to church. Because I'm trying to get married. You know, um, constantly pursuing, constantly pursuing relationship. And you know what? My heart kept breaking and I kept wasting myself. I kept feeling drained. And one day I told the Lord, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I went to New York. I went to different states. I, you know, I did all the phone calls. I spent hundreds of dollars, you know, and did all this, wasting my life. And one day I said, Lord, enough. I remember going to church that Sunday and I gave it all to him. I said, I'm done, Lord. I'm done looking. I, I'm, I'm, I'm content with you. I love you. You're my God. I'm content. I'm content. I love you and I know you love me. Right after that is when I met Lynette Rodriguez. <laughs> right after that. So, then I was just like, all right, cool, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I've been looking for, you know? She came through. God, you know, was gracious. But it was through much toil and suffering, much wasting of my life away. Thankfully, I didn't have a kid or walk out with, you know, certain situations that are lifelong. God was gracious. But when my wife came, you know, and now 22 years later, like God's given me something I don't deserve. And you know what? He's given grace in the midst of that. 22 years of marriage. I come from a family that never got married. None of my uncles, aunts, nobody in my family. I didn't even know what marriage was until I saw it in a, like, a novella. You know what I'm saying? On TV. <laughs> Novellas are Spanish for soap operas, because my mom loves soap operas, you know? There was this novella called Ma Maria de Nadia. And um, I remember watching that growing up, and I saw somebody get married in there. I was just like, what is that? She's wearing all white? This dude's in a tux? 
What is that? And I found out people get married that way. My family didn't get married. I never attended a wedding, ever, until I got much older. God was able to give grace to me from a family that doesn't get married, a family that constantly has girlfriends and whatever, kids everywhere, to be faithful to my wife for 22 years. God gives grace for what we need. And he's given it the greatest example of grace in Jesus Christ. So God's kindness and favor is given to those who are his. But if you're proud and live a life of pride, he opposes you. You're not humble. It's interesting that James includes the word more in verse 6. More meaning that God has given a great sufficient amount of grace. To know the kindness and love of God, even when we've been guilty of a life of spending ourselves, God still continues to be faithful and good to us. John Newton said, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first wonder will be to see many people there whom I did not expect to see. The second wonder will be to see many people whom I did expect to see. And then the third and greatest wonder of all will be to find myself there. His grace is sufficient. You should be humbled right now by the grace of God, not proud, because a proud life finds pleasure in the world. Pleasure seeking in the world comes from a proud heart that says to God, you're not enough. This is why James quotes 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud. The proud being those who have sought pleasure in the world, seeking to please themselves at all costs. But the pride of life will bring with it, I guarantee you, a life of ruin. But for those who have been humbled by this amazing grace that we sung today, God gives more grace. And what is grace? A merited favor. Favor undeserved. That's what grace is. But you know what? The better question is, who is grace? First, John chapter 1, verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The beauty is that grace is not just a theoretical idea. Grace is a person that has been given to us. So young adult, I love you today. I, I want to tell you how much we love you at our church. I want to tell you if, if you feel empty or you feel like, where's my marriage? Where's my relationship? Step back from that question and ask yourself, can I enjoy my relationship with God? You can, and you will, because God is good. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you. God, would you be with us? Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord God, to enjoy our relationship with you. To step away from a, a life full of passions for the world. God, would you stir our desires and passions for you? 
I pray for our young adults today, Lord God. And I, I know that the world is pressing on them to conform to it. I know it looks enticing to the world. I pray for single women, God, in our church that did things right and found themselves single. I pray for single fathers, Lord God. I pray for those that are single, God, who tried even to have a family, but things didn't work out. And they long, Lord God, for a relationship. God, would you grace them, Lord God? Would you grace them to enjoy you, to love on you, to know that they are in a marriage? They're married to Christ. Would you give them more grace? Would you humble them? Bring them to a place, Lord God, of appreciation for you. To be content. And I pray for those, Lord God, in relationships that they would not idolize them, but treat them as such, Lord God, that it's a gift from you. God, I pray more grace. You would empower them to live holy and to live joyfully for your glory.